0: The Fanboy, Episode 81. Francisco Robles MFR here with you and this is the 81st edition of the fanboy podcast how's everybody doing out there I'm going to start things off today with a little moment of silence for Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix Yeah, folks, news broke late last night on Thursday evening that uh, Netflix, I believe, is the one who has the cancellation powers in this situation. Netflix has canceled Daredevil, and a lot of people are very upset about it. Heck, even I'm very upset about it, and I don't even watch Marvel Netflix stuff anymore. I haven't really watched with any regularity since season two of Daredevil, which I loved, by the way. But, uh, you know, it's it's pretty upsetting. And there's some stuff to think about and unpack there and to speculate about, about the future. But before we get into that, let's catch up a little bit. It's been two weeks since I last spoke to you guys directly like this. Yes, I was, you know, I I was on the Revengers earlier this week. But, you know, I haven't had any one-on-one time with y'all in a while. So Thanksgiving came and went. I hope you guys had a phenomenal Thanksgiving. I hope you ate food that you enjoy with people who you at least marginally enjoy. And, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, my wife and I, we had 10 people here over at the house. We sat over there at the table for, for those of you who are watching over on the YouTube. My dining room was filled with wonderful people eating epic food and we had leftovers for days. We even had a leftovers party on Saturday. It's kind of a annual tradition of mine. You know, Thursday's always like the family day, and then Saturday is the friends day. We call it Friendsgiving. We also call it the leftovers party. Everyone brings a Tupperware of their favorite or at least most uh, abundant Thanksgiving leftover, and they bring it over, and we eat and drink and play games and be merry. And uh, that was a great day. And then Sunday, I got to go see Creed Two with my father and my grandfather. So it was it was a great weekend. And uh, later on in this episode, I actually have my father on the show. Yes, we recorded a conversation about Rocky in general. You know, my father is a huge Rocky nerd. And, uh, you know, he, he, the character has had, has had almost as much of an impact on his life and the way he views things as Superman has had on me. So I figured to coincide with the release of Creed two, you know, let me get the old man on the show to talk some Rocky and uh, maybe give you guys a chance to hear some of my roots, hear some of, you know, where I come from, where I get some of my, uh, my knack for taking this stuff very seriously from. Uh, So that's going to be towards the end of the episode and there will be proper spoiler tags for those of you who have not seen Creed 2 yet. But it's a pretty uh, heartfelt conversation between he and I. Heartfelt because he gets to talk about a subject that means a lot to him. Heartfelt because there are some interesting personal things that come up about his history, which him being my dad, a lot of his history intertwines with my life. And it also gets a little, you know, it gets emotional because in the course of that, he and I, you know, there's uh you know, he and I have a very loving relationship. And sometimes it just bubbles up in places that we don't anticipate. We'll be out talking, having dinner or whatever, hanging up, hanging out, and then all of a sudden we'll reference something from my childhood or we'll reference some way in which us being in each other's lives has inexorably changed each other's lives. And all of a sudden we're these big weepy grown men (laughs) but um i digress that i'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you later on in the episode um but yeah you know i hope you had a phenomenal holiday i hope you're all doing very well and now what say you we get into some geek stuff so, you know, let's talk some Daredevil. Because, you know, last night the uh, the announcement was made. The hammer came down. The axe chopped off the head. It's now over. Daredevil is over. He joins Iron Fist and Luke Cage in the cancellation pile. Now everyone's looking at Jessica Jones and The Punisher, which are going to be getting their next seasons. But for all intents and purposes, now people are anticipating these being their final seasons. So, which, by the way, is kind of weird. Like... Don't you kind of feel like they should have waited, not announced all these cancellations until after these shows had their next seasons? Because doesn't it sort of give the impression that, like, no matter how invested you get in these next two seasons, this is it. So, you know, should we really get as engaged or as, you know, invested? I don't know. But then again, maybe it's good because maybe now we'll watch it with a sense of finality. Maybe the writers were instructed, hey, listen. Don't leave any loose threads, because this is it for you. You know, who knows? But it's just, it, it's peculiar to think that they're chopping down all these Defenders characters one by one, and they, we've still got two more Marvel Netflix shows on the way. So, you know, I guess we'll see how that all plays out, and, you know, which shows end up getting picked up, or if, if even any of them do. You know, but in terms of Daredevil, you know, it's interesting how I feel about it, because... I do want it to continue. I was very, very pulled in by those first two seasons. I think Charlie Cox is the best thing to happen to this entire Marvel Netflix series. I think they're all pretty great. You know, maybe Finn Jones is maybe the weakest link, but overall, you know, I like all the, Mike Coulter, uh, what's her name, Ritter. You know, I, I, I like all of them, but Charlie Cox is really kind of the centerpiece of this whole thing and his portrayal of Matt Murdock, the way that series is written, was written and directed, at least with the first two seasons, and I hear the third was even, like, phenomenaler than the second one. That's not a word, but we'll just go with it. Um, but yeah, you know, so I, I want to see him go on, but like a lot of people are trying to say, like, you know, that they want the season, the, the series as a whole to get picked up right? Maybe pop up on Hulu or pop up on that Disney Plus streaming service, which, by the way, seems to be the big elephant in the room. It seems to be why Netflix is starting to cut ties with Marvel, because they know Marvel is essentially about to be positioned as a competitor to Netflix once Disney Plus comes out. And they don't basically want to be, you know, promoting a competitor at the time that Disney Plus is out, you know, once that comes out, now we're enemies, you know, Marvel is like, Netflix and Disney are going to become mortal enemies, last thing we want is to now be calling attention to your brand and your characters, so I get it, right, so people want to see the series return, Uh, my take on it is a little different, yes, I want it to continue, But for me, I would much rather either a limited series, like a mini-series type thing, give him like a six-episode little limited arc just to sort of wrap everything up. I haven't seen season three, so I don't know if there even is anything to wrap up. But, you know, I would like to see something that gives, you know, this Murdoch's arc a real sense of closure, you know. And if we're not going to do that, then give him a movie, you know, I want a movie. I, I you know, Give me like a good, phenomenal, modestly budgeted, but it would probably be much better than the budget of your av- average Daredevil episode. Give me a nice, modestly budgeted, two-hour Daredevil movie. It doesn't have to be in theaters. Give it to me on Disney Plus if you want. Give it to me on Hulu. Give it to me on Netflix before Disney Plus launches if you want. You know, whatever, it, whatever the case. You know, the point is I don't really want the show to just go on into infinity. I know that's not a popular, you know, opinion. You know, the studios over the years have conditioned us as audiences and more importantly as customers to just constantly want more and more and more. And it's like, you know, I'm totally happy with a, with a series that has a very clearly defined beginning, middle and end, I think, about Breaking Bad you know i think about shows like that where they said the story they wanted to say now they're not going to extend it just because the you know the the paying customer demands more sometimes you as the business owner have to be smarter than the paying customer and go you know what rather than watch this once wonderful product of mine become diluted and become a shell of what it once was and now you watch it just slowly you know just implode upon itself Let's end on a high note. Let's give them, you know, X amount of really masterfully crafted seasons of television. And now let's leave it alone. You know, because no one really asks anymore the questions of like, You know, what story is left to tell? What loose threads have yet to be resolved for our main characters? Is there anywhere to really go with the characters that wouldn't just be some sort of rehash of what's already happened? You know, people don't ask that sort of stuff anymore. They just, they finish the season, and whether they loved it or hated it, they're like, all right, well, now, you know, next year, I'll come back for the next season. It's just kind of like we've been trained. It's like this Pavlovian Automatic thing. Where we just all right. Well, well. Yeah, we'll see if the next season's better than this one. But it's like maybe we shouldn't be doing that. You know, it. it that, that's just me. I don't want to get like preachy or strange about it. But I'm personally a fan of a show just having closure and just ending after a few. Se- I, I'd rather have three or four amazing seasons of a show. Then 10 seasons of a show where maybe three or four of them were pretty good, but the rest was just running out the clock and rounding things out and trying to sell more ad time or trying to get more subscribers to your thing. You know, I, I for me, the quality is way more important than the quantity. And it's funny, too, because that's going to tie in a little later to what I you know, I want to talk a little bit about this announcement that Sylvester Stallone made about uh, retiring his Rocky But, you know, in terms of Daredevil, you know, give me a movie, give me a limited series, and I'll be very happy. The other thing, which to me feels a little more far-fetched, which is why I don't mention it initially, or I didn't mention it initially, is, you know, there's nothing to really stop Marvel Studios now from taking these Defenders characters And bringing them to the big screen, maybe not with their own movies. Maybe now you populate other people's movies with these characters as supporting players. You know, I don't know all the intricacies of the Marvel universe in terms of who connects to whom. I don't know if, you know, for example, does Luke Cage have any sort of connection to Black Panther? I don't know. You know, I I don't know those things, so I can't speak to that. But there's nothing in my mind as long, uh, unless there's something I don't know. There's nothing to stop Marvel Studios from looking at this as a gift, as going, well, look at this. Here are these fully fleshed out characters. Netflix already did all the heavy lifting of establishing them, giving them backstories, giving them supporting players, giving them a whole world that people are already invested in. So now we have this beautiful gift. Now we can make a Daredevil movie that hits the ground running. That maybe, you know, recaps or references the events of the first three seasons during the opening credits. But now we can just hit the ground running with Matt Murdoch. We don't have to get people invested. We've got Charlie Cox. We have this whole beautiful world set up by Jeff Loeb and the people who were running the series over there at Netflix. You know, it initially started as a Drew Goddard thing. And then Stephen S. Denight came on as a showrunner. Give Stephen S. DeKnight a Daredevil movie to make. Like, how great would that be? You know, so as far as I know, unless there are other legalities at play, in my mind, by the way, the legalities are probably only a matter of timing. You know, I'm sure Marvel can't announce a Daredevil movie tomorrow because I'm sure there's a certain like a a no-compete clause or some sort of wording in the contract that means that they own Daredevil, you know, TV rights for at least a limited window of time. But once that expires... There's nothing to stop Marvel from doing that. I mean, look at even what's happened with um, the, the what's his name, the, the Hellraiser guy, John Constantine, Matt Ryan. See, that was a roundabout way of getting to him. But, you know, how Matt Ryan was part of one version of uh, John Constantine, his show got canceled, but then the Arrowverse brought him back. Same actor, same character. They don't necessarily have to reference the NBC series in case there are legal hurdles there but he for all intents and purposes we know this John Constantine already and it happened we now he's on legends of tomorrow people think you know wouldn't it be cool if he had a DC universe series you know that's the beauty of DC or Marvel owning all their characters is okay yes yeah, certain versions of them may peter out but that, can't, that doesn't stop you from speaking to those actors and going, all right, well, now let's do it again in a couple years. Let's keep your story going. Let's have you put on that costume again because people love you in this role. So really, you know, even if there are legal hurdles, I don't see any reason why Marvel Studios can't keep on with these characters once whatever time parameters have expired on those Netflix deals. So folks, you know, sit tight. If anything, you know, this could be the beginning of a really, you know, exciting chapter in Daredevil's life or not in his life. He's not a real person. But you know what I mean? For the character, for that property, no longer having him shackled to the Netflix deal and without having to worry about those logistics. Because remember, the Russos have said they had the creative leeway if they wanted to, to bring the defenders into Infinity War if they wanted. So they could have done that, but one of the reasons that they didn't was because they knew they would have to juggle whatever Netflix's plans are. They'd have to work with all those writers, they'd have to work with that mythology, and it just became too much of a logistical hurdle to now be like, well, how is what we're going to do going to impact their next seasons of television and all this sort of stuff? Well, now that they don't have next seasons of television to worry about for Daredevil and Luke Cage and Iron Fist, Now, that frees up Marvel directors to use these characters. So I know it's sad, but this could be the start of something really special. And I know that there are cynics out there who go, Oh, well, I don't want, you know, PG-13, Daredevil. I don't want Disney-fied versions of these. And listen, you know... (sighs) I know a lot of that comes from, like, a a bias against the Marvel Studios brand. There are people who say these things because they're DC fanatics or they're, you know, whatever. And they want to look at everything Disney has done as if it's some crappy, watered-down, you know, one-liner popcorn, empty nonsense. But, folks, you know, first of all, Marvel Studios did have to sign off on letting Netflix do what it did with these characters, And if you look at some of the stuff they've been doing lately, they've shown they don't mind getting a little mature with this stuff. You know, Black Panther, while still a PG 13 experience, had a lot going on. It was deeper, it was more serious, it had allegorical content that connected to real life and real cultural issues, it had something to say. It had some edge to it at times in terms of the way it dealt with race relations and American history and trying to be a mirror on society. I know uh, it's very popular for a certain sect of people to attack to, uh, attack Avengers Infinity War, but that was a much more grown-up experience than we've seen from Marvel in many, many years. There's a lot of deep crazy heft on that bone, and that villain was fascinating. I mean, Thanos and, and and Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin, I mean, these are two of the best Marvel villains in any medium right now, and they are both happen to be live-action properties, and what's to stop them from going, all right, well, we did Thanos, now let's bring Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin into the fray. Like, they're not scared to go for more high mind, for, for, for deeper, more mature content. I know it's popular to just shrug them off because it's Disney and it's this. And listen, they've made a lot of popcorn fluff and a lot of bubble gum. I know. I've pointed it out. I have people yelling at me for being very dismissive of a lot of MCU movies. But I can, I can give credit where credit is due that in the year 2018, they showed they don't mind reaching for something a little heavier. So I wouldn't just discount the idea that we could get a phenomenal Marvel Studios produced Daredevil movie. Maybe it won't be quite as bloody or quite as graphic, but that's not what made that series special as far as I'm concerned. What made that series special was Charlie Cox's performance. It was the overall tone of the piece. It was the way it psychologically broke down that character. It was how fascinating his villains were. It's about his dynamic with his supporting players. It's about the great fight choreography and all that sort of stuff. And by the way, you can have amazing fights and brutal, you know, you don't have to necessarily have blood pouring everywhere to have great fight choreography and have great gritty up close action sequences you know it's just you know i just don't want people to discount the idea that marvel studios could make a phenomenal all-time classic daredevil movie i think they could especially if they get steven s tonight by the way i'm kind of stuck on that idea now that i mentioned it uh you know he did season one he's the one who you know brought us this version of Daredevil, and he has made the jump to being a feature film director, so I'm kind of ready to unofficially start a campaign to get Steven S. the Knight of Daredevil movie. But I digress. And you know, in all honesty, I mean, if, if, if this really ends up being the end, you know, I personally am very excited to see where Charlie Cox goes from here as an actor. To me, he strikes me as... You know, one of the better actors of this generation. You know, he's 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 definitely in the conversation. You know, when you think about your, you know, uh, Joaquin Phoenixes, when you think about your Jake halls, when you think about your Michael B. Jordans, when you think about these guys who are up and coming right now. You know, and by the way, Joaquin Phoenix is not necessarily up and coming, but you know, he has that that respect. Very few actors from you know from the nineties onward get that sort of you know major actor respect nowadays as actors have become much more disposable and so the idea of celebrity itself has become so cheapened. You know, we, we don't really have a lot of younger actors who people speak about in these raving terms in terms of what they can bring to the table as a thespian. Cause nowadays acting kind of gets discounted, I feel you know I, I remember growing up in the nineties and we would talk about the monstrous performances of, you know, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Marlon Brando and these sort of like Titan, you know, the, 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 the Sidney Poitiers of the world. the You know, the, 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 these big time actors who, you know, we used to speak about and we used to hold acting the Paul Newman's. I mean, there, there's so many actors who, you know, it was their gift, their talent, their craft that got so much attention and nowadays we don't really talk about what it is to be a great actor to bring an actor to bring a character and interpret a role in such a way that people can instantly lock into that character's plight and psychology and invest in their very unique mythology you know to me, that's a very big deal to be able to do. And Charlie Cox is one of those actors who, if you watch his work, you see this is a serious actor. This is not just some guy who stumbled into the role because he had a good look and can do some martial arts. This is a guy who built a character and a unique character at that. You know, because to, to play a blind person, to play a handy, capable person, you know, it's not easy if you yourself aren't, you know, don't have that that limitation. And it, it it irks me to even say that you call it a limitation. But, you know, if if you have that sort of situation, it's hard to if you don't have that sort of situation, I should say, it's hard to make that look real and authentic without like relying on tricks, you know. And, you know, what he was able to do with like playing that blind character, like, you know, it got me thinking, you know, thinking about Charlie Cox since last night and and my hopes that we get to see a lot more of him as an actor and perhaps you know, bigger and different and more diverse roles that really stretch his range and show us what other tool, tools he's got in his toolkit. Um, you know, it got me thinking back to, to yesteryear when uh, when yours truly used to be an actor. And, uh, you know, I remember I, I once had to play a blind guy in a show here in the city. This is back when I took this stuff very seriously and I still thought I was going to be a, some big actor one day. And uh, I was doing this show where it was a very intimate show, only four characters. My character was the whole show. I was in pretty much every scene. It was a play called Butterflies Are Free. And I was playing a character named Don Baker. And, you know, I had to learn what it was like to portray a blind person. And it was, it was, you know, we, we didn't want to take any shortcuts. We didn't want to, like, put me in like black sunglasses or do something to just give the impression Oh, this is what well, you know he's playing a blind person I wanted to be able to like actually learn what, it, what it's like to move and act and interact with those around you and interact with your sets and really get into the psychology of someone who is blind and if you'll humor me for like three minutes I'll try to keep this real brief and then we'll move on to our next stuff because there's a lot of you know a lot more interesting things to talk about but you know, if you'll humor me for a second, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite things about putting that character together, um, because, like for starters, I remember I blindfold. I looked like Daredevil. I blindfold. I I put a big black blindfold over the top of my head, and started learning the dynamics of my apartment. And walking around and learning what it was like to count the steps from the bedroom to the kitchen, and then the the steps from the kitchen to the bathroom, and then back, and learning you know how not to bump into things, and knowing my relationship to the things around me, and going into the kitchen and making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with a blindfold on, you know, all these types of little things to kind of get to you know, use my other senses to enhance my experience, to know how to use the other four things at my disposal to live, to go and live a normal everyday life. And perhaps my biggest thing was, I remember I went to this store on 59th Street between Park and Lex, and I it's called The Lighthouse, and it's specialized in products for the blind. And I went there. And I got my blind, you know, my, my walking cane, the collapsible walking claim, claim cane, the kind that we see a lot and that, you know, we just, you know, we, we closely associate with folks who are seeing impaired. And I got it. I got it out of the packaging. I stepped out of the store and I embarked upon an acting exercise where I was going to walk from Midtown East to the Upper West Side to visit my mother as if blind. And again, no sunglasses, no nothing. I had already trained myself to be able to have my eyes be very sort of unfocused and to not be, you know, not look at anyone, and to not—it's you know, really kind of like rely on everything else that I had going on, so that I, I wouldn't flinch if things happened in front of me. So I wouldn't instinctively give eye contact to whoever's speaking to me. You know, I—it took a lot of training, and by this point, for this exercise, I'd kind of mastered the the ability to make my eyes just, you know, not lock in on anything. So I'm walking around Manhattan. And three minutes into this little experiment of mine, because by the way, I, I should mention, I, yeah, the, the, the play took place in Manhattan. And it was, a, it was a guy who grew up in a very safe suburb in Scarsdale, suddenly moving on his own to the big city. And a part of me wanted to learn, how does New York City treat a young blind guy? You know, I just wanted to see, would they be comforting and supportive? Would they be rude and dismissive? Would anyone even care? You know, I wanted to see what Don might have felt like coming to the big city for the first time and walking the streets as a young blind man. So I'm, two, I'm three minutes into this exercise. I'm about two blocks away on my way to the Upper West Side. And I'm at a crosswalk and a woman without looking at me asks for directions. I just hear off to the side, this woman goes, hey, which way to 54th Street? And then I turn towards her with my unfocused eyes and then I notice that she covers her mouth, looks me up and down, sees the cane, and is now kicking herself with embarrassment. She's thinking, oh, my God, I just asked a blind guy for directions, and she's feeling a certain amount of, like, embarrassment or whatever. But, you know, I wanted to make this uh, a reasonable exchange with her, so I was just like, you know, what's that? And she goes, oh, you know, which way to 60th Street? I said, oh, 60th Street. Okay, well, you're going to want to go you know, three blocks north. So if you head in this direction, you'll hit 60th Street, can't miss it. And then she thanked me and went on her way. But it was like the first real test and she believed me and I helped her And that was a kind of like, I'll never forget that sense of like, I saw her cover her mouth when she saw the blind cane and realized she had asked someone who was vision impaired for walking directions, Uh, which, by the way, is not really that crazy because anyone who's walking around the city, you know, they know their way around. A blind person would have to know north, south, east, west and all that sort of thing. But she was very embarrassed. Um, And then that's it. it It took me a while. It took me probably about an hour to do the walk. And along the way, people were just grabbing my arm at crosswalks without even asking me, by the way, which was interesting. And it was educational for me. People would just take my arm and help me across the street at times. And that was interesting to see. And there was also stuff where, like, I'd hear people talking about me, going, oh, look at that poor guy. Oh, that sort of thing. And I would get this, like, sympathy and whatever. And I bendito, the mozo y you know, whatever. And... You know, and then I had to make a decision as an actor, too, to figure out, like, well, how would Don feel about that? Because people feel different ways about sympathy, right? Some people are like, don't pity me. I don't need your sympathy. I can do this. How dare you, you know, act like I'm this helpless thing and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, would I be someone who really appreciated that warmth and whatever? You know, so I, it, it was a great exercise. And I remember the big payoff was, you know, I, I did that show for three weeks We did a lot of performances, and there were more than one occasion. By the way, and it was like in an intimate theater. It was not this big, huge 300-seater where, you know, like the, the people in the front row were about 10 feet away from me. So they could really see what I was doing and watch my relation to the set and how I got around. And on more than one occasion, there were people waiting in the lobby afterward who when I came out and they wanted to meet and greet with the crowd or, you know, with the, with the cast and take pictures or whatever, people who were dumbfounded that I could see. There was this one guy who was like, yo, I thought they hired a blind actor. That's crazy. And I'll just never forget that, that pride of like, wow, I did it. You know, for at least a couple of people, I was so convincing that they thought I was actually a blind actor and, you know, I just, you know, thinking about Charlie Cox and playing Matt Murdock and all, it just got me thinking about that. And, uh, yeah, I just thought I'd share that. I hope that was uh, reasonably interesting for you. But now let's kind of bring it back a little, right? Because I, I alluded to the fact that I feel like audiences now just always want more and more and more. And even if, and e- even if they're not wanting more and more and more, they just expect more, more, more. We've been conditioned to just there will always be another season. There'll always be another sequel. There'll always be another spin-off or remake or reboot or, and so on and so forth. But do we ever really ask, well, what's left for these characters? You know, and that's why like the, the announcement of by, by Sylvester Stallone that he's retiring as Rocky Balboa to me was actually music to my ears. Because, you know, for anyone who also listens to the Revengers podcast, you know, someone had sent in a question. Mike Fmer. How you doing, Mike? Uh, Mike sent in a question about how I would want the series to end. Would I want, you know, Rocky to die? Or, you know, just he, he, he kind of came up he asked me how he, I would want the Rocky slash Creed franchise to come to an end. And I said, rather, I guess, controversially at the time, I would be happy if it ended right now. I think Creed 2 was a fitting end for both lead players, both the original, Rocky Balboa, and for Adonis Creed. But specifically with Rocky, you know, A, we've already gotten a few farewells already, right? We had a farewell at the end of Rocky V. We had a farewell at the end of Rocky Balboa. We kind of, each of those times we thought, okay, this is the end of this character's arc. It was satisfying in a way. Now let's move on. Then Creed brought him back, and I thought it did wonderfully, by the way. He was my favorite part of the movie, you know, getting to see Rocky at this stage of his life and, and the interesting obstacle they put before him in that film. But at the end of, of Creed 2, vague spoiler, you know, there's a moment where he watches what happens from afar. And he distances himself from what happens as he wants Adonis to experience this on his own. And between that moment and then the final moment that we see Rocky on the screen, I totally felt like, okay, this is Rocky's end. He's done everything that there is to do. He's gone from the scruffy underdog... All the way up to being the world heavyweight champion, he's gone from being the loner to being a guy who got the woman of his dreams and he got, you know, he, got, he had a son and he, he he built that community and then that promptly collapsed, right? So that became, you know, he lost Adrian, he lost his relationship with his son and now his his arc became about trying to make that right. He makes that right. I'm not gonna say how, but that he makes peace with that. I'm not gonna say whether or not he makes it right, but he makes peace. He finally comes to the end of that arc. So really, what else is there for Rocky to do other than just be the old guy giving advice in the quarter? And then he it almost be he almost becomes trivialized if you bring him back for future sequels. You know, it, it struck me as it's it's time. It's time. He has his book ends. We've given him his ending. Let him just wrap this up. And the same thing, honestly, for Adonis. If you think about it, this should be the end of his arc. And I have to tread lightly here, unless we're going to go ahead and get into spoilers. Um, all right. Stick attack in this. I'm gonna come back to how I think Adonis's Creed is done after these next couple of topics because I, I, I don't want to lose those of you who are avoiding spoilers just yet. So stick attack in Adonis Creed, okay? But and one last thing about Sylvester Stallone in particular, you know, I think uh, he gave us one of the great cinematic gifts in Rocky Balboa and in this mythology. And in all honesty, I feel no regret or remorse about his announcement. I think, se lo comió. I think he, with Creed too, and with the way his arc ends there, I think this was the perfect way to send Mr. Balboa off into the sunset where he can retire and live out his final chapter. And it's a chapter that doesn't require a movie, you know what I mean? It's a quieter story for him from now on, and I think that's the end. So, uh, Sylvester Stallone, I know for a fact you're not watching or listening to this, but thank you, sir, for what you gave us. And uh, now I can't wait to see what else he got cooking, all right? So, <clears throat> a couple other things going on before we get back to that. Uh, Marvel's going to have a pretty big week next week. I know some other uh, peers of mine, I say peers with quotation marks because... You know, I work alone. I don't really have peers. Uh, and, you know, at Revenge of the Fans, you know, I have my little clique of guys. I have my Matt Vernier and Jonathan Brady and Adam Bassiano and Jason Ruiz and, you know, Thomas Kelly and, and Trey Jackson. You know, I have my little core nucleus, but none of us see each other. And, you know, it's all sort of indirect. So when it comes to other people who aren't even part of the Revenge of the Fans thing, you know, it's hard for me to call them peers, but technically we're in the same industry, so I have to consider them a colleague of some sort. Some of my other colleagues have been teasing about Marvel's big week. And while I don't want to, you know, necessarily uh, spoil anything, because there are some folks who gave me privileged information, and I don't want to get them in trouble with their sources, but suffice it to say, That over the course of the next one to three weeks, we're going to get glimpses of up to three Marvel movies. Okay? I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to say when, but I'm not even going to say which properties. But you guys can connect the dots yourselves. Look at the films that have been in production, that that, that have either been filming or have filmed or are still in the middle of production. And you'll be able to deduce which ones I'm referring to. But there's going to be two or three trailers slash teasers arriving for Marvel's cinematic universe and the you know what they have on the immediate horizon. So you connect those dots yourselves. But for those of you who are clamoring for more or to find out certain things about these upcoming films, the wait is very, very close to over. I want to tease more, but I won't. But yes, so that's pretty exciting. And, you know, I know what the scuttlebutt is. And I just want you to know that sit tight because the wait is not long. December is going to be a fabulous month for MCU fans. And that doesn't mean it's also not going to be epic for DC fans because. Have you heard all the stuff going on, folks? Yesterday they announced, well, not that they announced, but the rap broke the story that they're developing a Blue Beetle movie based on the Jaime Reyes version of the character. And while I don't know a lot about Blue Beetle and all that sort of stuff, you know, from what little I do know, a part of me is like, can we get Guillermo del Toro for that? Because I was thinking about, like, you know, who would I want to direct it, right? Right. It's about a Mexican teenager, and it's a sort of offbeat, borderline, obscure character. And I'm like, I started thinking about Guillermo, because he almost did, you know, Justice League Dark. And and he did Hellboy. And we know he has a thing for things that are a little off the beaten path. And I, I can't help but feel like what he would come up with for a Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle movie, I think, would blow us away You know, granted, he's going to be busy with Pinocchio for a while, but you know how these in-development movies are with DC. It takes a while for them to happen. So we may not see that for another two or three years anyway, so they could wait until he's done with Pinocchio or whatever else. So that's kind of, I just want to put that out there. That's kind of like my fan cast uh, for who should direct uh, the Blue Beetle movie. But the the bigger story, if you're a DC fan, is that, remember, we were all very worried, especially me. I was very worried about how Aquaman would fare on its opening weekend with all of that steep competition. You know, it's coming a week after Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which the buzz is ridiculous for right now. And I contributed to it because it's an amazing film. And I wrote a full review over at RevengeOfTheFans.com, went up on Wednesday. It's really a very, very remarkable achievement of a film. So go read my review and, you know. But the point is, Aquaman's opening up on December 21st. It's going to have Spider-Man opening a week before it. It's opening at the same opening weekend as Mary Poppins Returns and Bumblebee. And also, it's the holiday season, which a lot of times, you know, people forget this because of the fact that Star Wars has broken and obliterated all these box office records around Christmas, but Christmas is not typically a time for a gigantic opening. You know, we're used to some of these outsized, like, summer blockbuster-type openings, but typically, like, the like the big one, up until... The Force Awakens came out was The Hobbit, uh, An Unexpected Journey, and that was only like $84.7 million. It's silly to say, you know, only. But, you know, in general, movies don't open huge. So there was a lot of reasons to think that Aquaman may have a sort of uh, an uphill battle in its opening weekend. But now, based on projections coming from, I don't know exactly what metrics, but both The Hollywood Reporter and Deadline are claiming it's gonna open. It's gonna have like a a, a three-day weekend of around 65 million bucks, and a five-day stretch if you also continue. Because after the weekend, we go directly into Christmas Eve and Christmas. So from Friday to Tuesday, they're thinking it's gonna make like $100 million. And just to put that into perspective, that means it's actually gonna win its weekend. It's gonna come up victorious over Mary Poppins. It's gonna come up victorious over Bumblebee. And so, for anyone who was worried about how people were going to take to Aquaman, or would Aquaman just be seen as an also ran? Is it going to be in second or third place? Whatever the case may be, you know, now we can kind of breathe easy. We can take a sigh of relief that no, Aquaman is actually going to win. Right now, there's enough buzz that he's going to take down Disney's big blockbuster. And Paramount's big blockbuster. And listen, I know that, that last the, the, the latter portion people are still sleeping on because it's Transformers and people are so burnt out by the previous four or five or seventeen Transformers. Movies. I have no idea how many there have been. But the buzz on Bumblebee is phenomenal. You know, people as soon as that first trailer dropped, people started talking about how, oh my goodness, it's a live action iron giant. This has a lot of heart. It's Travis Knight, the maker of you know, the the uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, who's also n- may now be up for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Like, this is a whole other ballgame. This is not Michael Bay's popcorn crap. This is like a real valuable, exciting, intriguing blockbuster that could appeal to way more than we're used to, you know, a much wider audience than the, than the Transformers franchise typically has. So, you know, there there were plenty of reasons to be concerned. And yet here we are with Aquaman, the king of Atlantis, going, no, that's going to be my weekend. I don't care who's standing in front of me. I'm going to win this thing. And, you know, and obviously we're going to have to see how it plays out. You know, when I wrote about this yesterday or the day before, you know, I made sure to remind people that these long term, these long range projections don't always pan out. You know, I I think about Solo, a Star Wars story. At one point, they were saying, oh, it's going to open to $165 million or $170 million. And then it opened to, what, like 80-something or 90-something? Like, it was, you know, listen, still not a god-awful number, but also, you know, a far cry from what it was going to. And we all know what happened with Solo, a Star Wars story. So I'm not saying that to, by the way, to to piss in the soup and, you know, enjoy the soup. Aquaman's looking real good. But let's also just, let's also take a deep breath and go, all right, now let's see how it actually does. Because these projections don't always pan out. But regardless, sorry, I hit the mic there. Um, Regardless, DC's going to have a big month just because Aquaman's coming out. It's got a lot of phenomenal buzz around it ever since the trailer, ever since the press screenings, ever since fan screenings. Everyone's saying this thing is going to be a great time at the theaters, that James Wan has crafted a real winner of a movie, a real, you know, championship caliber blockbuster film. So, you know... DC is going to be riding a huge wave. Remember, there there ain't no MCU movies coming out this month, and there hasn't been one since the summer when Ant-Man and the Wasp came out. So DC is about to take the pop culture spotlight in a major way. And then when you factor that in, with the fact that I've I've, I've got my own little bochinche, I've heard a little bit of rumor and innuendo from a source of mine that, They're planning one final nice little surprise for us. Uh, They wouldn't say what it was. Then they said, you know, actually, you know, they they, they really wouldn't give me much. And then they refused to say if it's big or small or what, you know, whether it's a trailer or an announcement for a new movie or an announcement for a new TV series or a casting thing. They didn't get into any specifics, but my gut, just my gut and my brain, uh, tell me. It's probably going to be either a second trailer for Shazam because we haven't seen anything from Shazam since the summer and the movie is now coming out. And, you know, if we're looking at the end of December, that means that Shazam comes out in like four months. It comes out in April. So I have a feeling it's going to be either trailer two for Shazam or perhaps an official teaser for The Joker. Because I know it feels like we've gotten all kinds of Joker materials, but it's important to remember, none of that's really been released to the general public. You know what I mean? Us on Twitter and Instagram, we ate up Todd Phillips' Instagram post of, of the makeup test when we first see Joaquin Phoenix in that creepy John Wayne Gacy makeup. But by and large, the general public hasn't seen Squat yet. They haven't seen a poster. They haven't seen a teaser. This movie is on no one's radar. And it would probably be a pretty smart move to release a little tease, even if it's just very just a minute long, something that just you with the laugh in the background and just the 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 word the joker coming this November. Like just something. So th- those are my two guesses. Either a Shazam trailer or a Joker tease. I know the other option would be a Wonder Woman 1984 tease. But you know what? Since that got bumped out of 2019 and is now arriving in 2020, I feel like they're probably gonna hold on to any Wonder Wonder Woman teaser until Comic-Con, you know, until the summer before her movie comes out, which is will give them like a full year of promotional time to get the film, you know, into the public eye. So I would not expect it to be a Wonder Woman thing. Uh, I know people want it to be a a multitude of things. People have asked me, oh, is it going to be a Snyder Cut announcement? Is it going to be uh, an announcement about who's playing Batman? Is it going to be some announcement about Superman? In all honesty, I consider all of those very, very far-off long shots, kind of like a snowball's chance in hell type of long shots. And not because of any cynicism, but it's more so just looking at it logically, okay? Batman's not coming anytime soon. Okay, yes, we know it's gonna. It's supposedly going to film in the middle of next year. But by all accounts, we're not getting to see a Batman movie until probably 2021. So for them to start trying to draw public attention and put a spotlight around Batman right now just seems a little presumptuous. It seems a little too... We're not there yet. Um, and... You know, the Superman thing is another one that's like, listen, right now there is no Superman film in development, for better or worse, you know, for worse, obviously, if you're a fan like I am, but for better or worse, there's not a Superman film in progress or, you know, in any state of production, and it's not going to be a Superman thing as much as it pains me. Would I like to be wrong? Yes, I would love to be wrong, but I would not expect it to be that. And in terms of, you know, the the Snyder Cut, that's probably the biggest long shot of all. You know, I've always maintained we may see it one day, but it won't be for years. Um, and that's all I can really say about that for now. Because, uh, you know, there's there, there, are, there, there has been, I should say, a little bit of movement on that front uh, for the Snyder Cut. But it's not really what people are probably hoping for. In fact, if if what I'm hearing ends up being, like, it ends up coming to pass, uh, I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of upset feelings. So that's why just, folks, I know you want the Snyder Cut. I want to see it too. But you really shouldn't be getting your hopes up. If we're going to see it, if we are going to get to see it, it's going to be years from now more than likely. It is what it is, okay? Um... And one other note, though, about, uh, about Batman, just circling back. You know, a friend of mine in the sort of design end of things over at Warner Brothers uh, came through to me a couple days ago and let me know that the studio is really keeping an eye on Aquaman and there's a sense amongst the people working on the pre-production for the Batman that they're not going to find out what their budget is until Aquaman comes out, you know, and this is kind of like that thing, you know, it's interesting, you know, I've been talking all year about the fact that, you know, Walter Hamada is is a money guy, you know, the guy who they, ha- they now have running things is a gentleman who knows how to get a lot from a little, who doesn't just splurge, who doesn't just offer blank checks, who doesn't just go, all right, that's a good idea, go, whatever it takes, let's just do it. You know, he comes from the horror realm where it's like, okay, you've got five million bucks, make the best horror movie you can. And that's what he does. So he's not just about, even though it's Matt Reeves, even though it's Batman, by all accounts, he's not just going to give Matt Reeves a blank check and go, okay, go make your dream Batman movie. He's going to say, all right, based on what the audience is telling us, based on their reaction to Aquaman, based on the general buzz around DC projects, here's what we feel comfortable giving you to make this film. So, you know, I just find that interesting because, you know, a lot of talk has, has, has gone on as we try to figure out, you know, what lessons will Warner Brothers try to learn from Aquaman? What is it that they're going to take away from the film's either success or failure? What will be directly impacted and what won't be? And it was interesting to have someone tell me, like, more or less point blank, that the feeling is that things are w- w- with Batman are, are, are almost sort of on hold until Aquaman, because when that comes out, that's when they'll know how much money they have to play with and how far they can really go with the designs and the sets and the construction of everything. You know, so it's just something interesting I thought I'd share with you guys. And, uh, you know, so that's it. You know, December is going to be a big month for for Marvel fans and DC fans in different sorts of ways. So I'm very excited to get into this month. And we got the holidays coming and we got a lot of great films coming out. So, uh, you know. Bring on the holiday season. Bring on what the, the, the studios have, some big guns lined up for us. And I, for one, cannot wait to see how it all plays out and how people take to it all. Um, but okay, so now we're going to kind of transition over into some Creed Two spoiler territory. We're going to get into my conversation with my father about Rocky and all that sort of stuff. So for those of you who don't want any Creed Two spoilers... Uh, This is more or less where I leave you. This is where you can X out and come back at a later date. Hopefully you do. Um, And thanks for listening to episode 81, all right? But there's going to be probably another like 40 minutes worth of show for those of you who are uh, ready to stick around and and, and discuss and listen to all this stuff with me. So Creed 2, in terms of specifically what I started earlier, in terms of where do we go here with Adonis Creed, and then I'll just share some general thoughts on the film. Um, you know, if you think about it, Adonis has nowhere else to go anymore, for those of you who've seen it. And just to sort of recap, so you know what I'm talking about, you know, when, you, when you're writing something, when you have a character, whether it's a whether you're writing a play or you're writing a movie, you know, any screenwriting class will tell you, your, your your character has to have a want. What are my characters wants? What are their intentions? What is it? What is their overarching goal in life? And what are they doing to try to achieve it? And if you look at Adonis Creed, right, in the first movie, it was all about his relationship to his father's legacy, figuring out does he hate his father? Does he love his father? Is his father a motivation? Is his father a hindrance? Can he bring the creed name and own it himself and and and, and, and create his own legacy? Can he right the wrongs of his father? You know the, 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 it was all about his relationship to his dad. And ultimately he triumphed, right? At the end, he came, he saw, he conquered, he won the world title. They gave him his dad's old trunks in certain ways it gave him a lot of closure on what it was like to not have Apollo in his life anymore and he got the girl like you know he 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 fully succeeded in in getting his goals in that movie right then in season in season 2 in movie 2 in Crete 2 we start exploring this idea of well now what you know he gets the title And all of a sudden, he doesn't know what he's fighting for anymore. And it doesn't necessarily feel the way he thought it would feel. And he no longer has his father's voice in the back of his head. And he no longer knows what his driving, motivating force, because so much of what fueled him was that internal conflict about his relationship with his father. So much of that is what fueled him to become the world champion and fight and do the things that he did. That now that he did it, And he climbed that mountain. You get to the top of the mountain and you're like, oh, okay, so I made it here. What happens now? And it's a really interesting conflict and it's a very relatable one. Remember, these Rocky movies are always great about using the boxing world as a metaphor for life. You know, in all honesty, you know, I know a a friend who, right now, you know, she's. She's in this place where she feels her life has plateaued a little bit. She's a very like type A personality and she spent her entire adult life doing things in a very meticulous way to get to a particular place. You know, first I'm going to get the job and then I'm going to get the the, the, the spouse and then we're going to have the kid. And, and before I have the kid, I'm, I have to have this, you know, I have to reach a certain level in my professional life and I have to have a stable home and the mortgage all paid and all this sort of stuff. And then I'll have the kid and then I'll do this. And now basically, she's reached the end of all that planning and she's only in her 30s. And she's like, okay, now what? She's in this weird zone now. It's almost putting her in a bit of a funk and a bit of a depression. And it's funny to think, right? How could you feel depressed about achieving your goals? You'd think, oh, I achieved my goals. I'm living the dream. But it really is a real thing that some people hit. We're now, okay, I've achieved my goals. Now what? What happens now? What What else is there to strive for? So that's what makes Adonis' arc so, you know, meaningful, And in terms of what he has to accomplish, those you know. So in the first movie, he gets the title and he deals with that. In the second movie, he gets he he marries. uh, I, I forget Tessa Thompson's character, but they get married. They have a kid, and he finds a whole new lease on life through that kid and, and and a whole new motivation a whole new reason to fight a whole new reason to do the things that he loves and to really attack life with all of the passion and vigor because now he has these people who are counting on him and they want to see him doing what he loves and he wants to do what he loves to give them the life he thinks they deserve it's a beautiful full circle sort of thing to to you know to to, to like enter this world enter this adult life and this mission that we have using exterior forces right using the 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 issue with his father as an example. Using an exterior force and now suddenly finding that now motivation must come from within. Motivation must come from what you're building, from your own home, from your own nucleus that you're building. That is now where you have to spark and make a fire that's gonna now carry you forth into the next chapter of your life. It's a beautiful thing. And then the other big thing was, in terms of some leftover hangover baggage from his father's life, is the fact that his father died in the ring fighting Ivan Drago. And that's why having Victor Drago come up and threaten him and challenge him and have Ivan lurking there in the shadows, the man who killed his father, the man who broke things in Rocky that ain't never been fixed. And Rocky's like his new father figure. To now have to climb that mountain, is a whole other new challenge, it's a whole new world for Adonis. And throughout the arc of the movie, he finds a way to climb that mountain, and he succeeds. He beats Victor, he retains the title, he now in the eyes of the world, and more importantly, in the eyes of himself and his family, he is a worthy champion. He has vanquished a considerable foe, he has stopped in, the, in their tracks, the person who killed his father in, a, in an indirect way. He's like righted that wrong. So now that's why to me, if they wrap up Creed 2 right here, it's a perfect ending. There's no real other things he needs to do. Yes, okay, now we can make a Creed 3, and now there's a new challenger he has to fight, and he's a big, scary dude, and it puts him through a whole new physical challenge and whatever. But for all intents and purposes, we've covered all like a full arc of a person's life, in a way, through these first two Creed movies. So part of me is just hoping, let's just wrap it up. Let's let Creed 2 be the end of not just Rocky Balboa, but of the Adonis Creed story. Now let's let us imagine where he goes next. Let him just go off into his own little sunset. He's got his wife, he's got his daughter, he's got his title, He has his. he's at peace with Apollo, that beautiful scene at the end where now he's talking to Apollo in the graveyard. Like, Adonis is done. Let's just wrap it up in a bow. Let's leave it the way it is. To now start milking this into Creed 3 and Creed 4, you know, it's, it's going to almost get into something my dad says later on in the conversation you're going to hear in just a bit about, like, now let's get Rocky in space. Like, I don't want to keep, now let's put him in a new situation. For all intents and purposes, Ryan Coogler gave us an Adonis Creed that had certain intentions, certain things that they needed to deal with, demons that they had to vanquish. And now Adonis has closed that loop. We've successfully concluded what Ryan Coogler began in that first movie. So now it's kind of like my my solemn desire. I want a voice to you all. I want a voice to the powers that be at MGM and Warner Brothers. I think it's time to, let's leave it. What a beautiful high note Creed II was. And let's just leave it here. I think, we, I think as much as we would like more, because we're conditioned for more, I would really think that in the big picture, we'll appreciate this whole thing a lot more if this is the end of it. If we're going to get another 10, 15 years of Creed movies, and now followed by now, we're going to watch his daughter, who's a deaf female boxer. Like, I, you know, let's just wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. That's kind of, you know, that's what I want to get into. But In terms of that movie, in terms of just my little mini review of that movie, I was, how do I put it? I was awestruck at times. It was everything I wanted that kind of movie to be. You know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not like the rest. I saw Creed and I didn't fall in love with it the way so many people did. I thought it was a fine movie. Uh, I loved Rocky's portions of it. But there was something about it where the, the, the parts didn't equal, you know, the, the, the sum equaled less than the parts, or I don't know how else to phrase it, but it just, it didn't, it wasn't a home run for me. It was a B, B-minus type of situation. Creed two, on the other hand, I just loved from bell to bell, from start to finish, I thought, wow, this is a great, insightful character study. And I love these characters, and I love the Rocky mythology and the way it's being updated and the way it's being twisted on its head a little bit. And even for me, honestly, and this is going to be very controversial, so I'm sorry, but I think Stephen Cappell Jr. directed, like, how do I put this? Like, He directed his ass off. I think he out-directed Ryan Coogler, which I know is like heresy. Ryan Coogler is, you know, the next big thing. And he's the one who came up with Creed. It's his idea. It's his baby. But I think Capel Jr. showed a lot more filmmaking prowess, to me at least, than Coogler did. There's things he did there with the score and with the editing and with the cinematography in particular that I thought was just masterful. I mean, there's a whole visual story being told that I did not see being told in in the first Creed. Maybe I should go back and watch it. But there's this whole little subplot that is never, ever spoken, but is prevalent throughout the film. And that theme is men trapped inside their own little boxes and their own little cage of emotions and not knowing what to do or how to escape those cages that we put upon ourselves. These men who don't know how to deal with their emotions, or we're taught to keep everything bottled up. All this sort of stuff. You know, whatever the case may be, the cinematography shows us almost all the lead characters in a box at some point, like literally. Like at one point, shortly after his daughter's been born. No, no, shortly after the big fight, Adonis gets out of bed and he's staggering, he's freshly home from the hospital and he's taking pain meds and he he drops the pills in the sink. There's a shot where the camera is now outside of the bathroom, where you could see the hallway that leads into his bedroom with his beloved. And you see him in the bathroom and the way it's shot All you see is Adonis standing in a box. It's like a it's like a little rectangular square that he's standing in and he's struggling and he doesn't know how to ask for help. He doesn't want to ask for help. He feels like he's lost. He doesn't know who he is anymore. That initial loss to Victor Drago has completely gutted him and made him feel like I don't know what all this, what the point of all this was for. He's a broken man looking for meaning. And yet. What does he do with it? He goes off into his little box. And just like when he goes over to the gym and he wants to go in and train so badly, but he doesn't know how to deal with those emotions so he drives away. And then later on, we see Rocky in a box. When the baby is born, when when, when Adonis and his wife's baby is born and we see Rocky waiting for them in the waiting room and he's sitting there and he's mulling over calling his son, and then he goes over to the payphone, or he goes over to the phone to call his son, and then doesn't go through with it. In that shot, once again, the camera pulls back, and one side of the screen is basically just darkness. It's an unlit, sort of unimportant room, and what you see is Rocky standing in a lit room inside of a cage, inside of a rectangle, where he hangs up the phone, and he just doesn't know what to do with himself, how to get out of his own little box of fear, his own little box of insecurity, his own concerns about who I am, what is my destiny, am I doing this right, how do I make this right, am I strong enough to fix what's been broken? Heavy, heavy stuff. Now we also know that Victor's dealing with his own stuff. Victor Drago, Ivan Drago were dealing with their own deep, thematic, like just awful challenges. hang-ups and tragedies that they've dealt with as a family unit since the events depicted in Rocky IV that by the time we get to that final fight it is by no means a coincidence that when Victor enters the, the, the ring the lights do a funny thing And then they look like bars. They look like caged-in bars. After they pan around the arena, they then shoot straight down to put a perfect box around the ring with little bars and everything. It looks like a cage. And Adonis has to enter that cage with Victor. And the two of them have to have this fight where by the end of it, they discover who they are, what they're really made of, and they have their own, you know, victories, so to speak. Uh, and I know, And obviously Victor loses the fight, but he gets another victory because in the middle of that, his father finally realizes that getting the approval of the Russian diplomats, getting back his ex-wife, that's not what really matters. What really matters is his boy in the ring. And trying to keep that boy safe after years of raising him in hate and forcing him to fight his battles, try to overcome his demons, his failings, he turned his son into a blunt force weapon to try to win his battles for him. And he realizes all this time, all he ever needed was his son. It's heavy stuff. It's beautiful stuff. And a lot of it comes from putting these guys inside of their boxes, inside of their cages, and finding a way for them to finally break loose of what was holding them in. And to me, that's all in the cinematography. And Stephen Cappell Jr. did all that with the way he shot these scenes, with the way he structured this story. And that's why, too, specifically with the Drago storyline, like, this film did what so few uh, sequels tend to do which is not only does it follow up on what came before but it actually enriches and improves upon what came before it because rocky 4 listen a lot of people love rocky 4 but it's primarily because of how cheesy it is you know what i mean the the training montage the songs the whole, you know, Ivan Drago is this almost like one-dimensional big, I must break you. Like, it's a very quotable, cheesy, fun movie. And for people who grew up around that time, they'll always have the warm and fuzzies about Rocky IV. But the movie itself is kind of hollow. It is kind of just cheesy, a little one-dimensional. You know, it didn't have the heft and the gravitas of the first two Rockies, or even the third Rocky. So... What I was struck by watching this was, wow, going back and watching Rocky IV now, having seen Creed II, is gonna be a whole new experience. Knowing what that fight does to Drago, knowing what that does to his marriage, knowing what this sets up for his relationship with his son, knowing his fall from grace from being Russia's champion to being this has-been living in a little dingy apartment in a crappy part of wherever, you know, Russian town they're in. Like, you know, it's going to add emotional heft and, and dimensionality to Rocky IV that really was not there the first time. So to me, that's one of the great things too, you know, early, I guess it's it's becoming a running theme of of episode 81 here, but in terms of like sequels, when you're making sequels, are you asking, or when you're making follow-up seasons, are you asking yourself, is this enriching what came before it, or is it just merely adding, there's nothing wrong with adding. But to make something truly special, something that really that truly stands the test of time and makes for a very more complete overall picture, you've also got to find, the best filmmakers among us will find a way to not only add, but to enrich what came before. Make the past better by adding all of this extra heft and perspective to things, and um, so to me, it's, just, it's a beautiful movie. I could probably talk about Creed 2 for a lot longer, but uh, this is not a Creed two review, so I'm gonna stop rambling and raving about that now. Uh, I'm gonna bring on my father in just a second. Uh, I recorded this conversation a few days ago, um, and you know, as soon as it was over, and as soon as I said goodbye to him, I started kicking myself, because there was stuff that I, I meant to say, or I wanted to say, But then like emotion got the better of me and my mind sort of went blank. And Pop, I don't know if you're going to watch this part of the show. I don't know if you're going to listen to this part of the show. I don't even know if you're going to listen to this episode at all. I'm going to have to explain to you, you know, how to get a podcast app and get this show at all to begin with. So I don't know if you're ever going to see this. But for those of you who are listening and for you, Dad, something I meant to say before emotion got gets the better of me in the middle of our conversation is thank you because you know growing up you were in a lot of ways my mentor right and you used to talk about wow it's 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 really something about you son that when you love something you don't just love it, and then move on. You then go and have to learn everything there is about that thing that you love. And then once you learn it, you're able to talk about it with such passion and such energy that now you get people invested in something that you love. He always said, like, that's like a gift you have. And he's like, if only there were a way that you could do that for, you know, in, like, for your life, for your career, for your, you know, as a way to make a living. If you could find some way to take your voice and share your love and passion for the things you're excited for, you know, you should really move towards that. And Pop, welcome to the Fanboy Podcast. Welcome to RevengeOfTheFans.com. You know, you indirectly inspired me to do all this. You're the reason that I had any inclination that my voice might matter at all. And then I took the gamble and started this whole thing. You know, so I didn't get to say this face to face with you when we recorded this. But if you're watching this, and even just for those of you who are just viewers or listeners, you know, my dad is the reason that any of this is happening. So if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy the tone of what I do, if you enjoy how in depth I dive into things and how, I, how analytical I can be. But yet, you know, whatever. If you enjoy this, so much of this comes from my pop and listening to him talk about this stuff. And listening to you, know, be, being on the train ride home with him after seeing a movie, and now discussing it in depthly in ways that no one else was really doing, talking about the cinematography and the score and who directed it and what else did they direct, and now r- diving down a rabbit hole about now let's see their other movies and let's see how they've improved. And let's, you know, a lot of that comes from my dad. And uh, that's what makes it real special to have him on. So without further ado, here's my conversation with my father, Jeffrey Robles, about Rocky and, uh, and, and uh, some more. So at this point in time, it is my pleasure to bring here onto the Fanboy Podcast, someone very near and dear to me, the biggest Rocky fan I know, and <laughs> someone I've been talking about all year. I have to have him on when Creed 2 comes out. So without further ado, folks, here is Jeffrey Robles. Hi, guys. <laughs> so, Pop... You and know, gals. Guys and gals. You know, uh, it's it's no secret that the Rocky mythology and these films and what Sylvester Stallone has built over these last 42 years has had an impact on you, which is why it was important for me to get you out to see <laughs> that movie the other day. Getting to watch that with you and Abuelo was uh, very special for me. And now I get to talk some real Rocky with you. And I, I want people to hear what it is that you like so much about this character. So I feel like we need to go to the beginning. Does that make any sense? That makes sense. It does, right? So take me back. 42 years ago, <clears throat> you saw the first Rocky film. Can you, can you share with my listeners your experience watching the first film?
1: <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I was uh, uh, 16, and I actually didn't see it when it opened. I think it opened uh, November 21, 1976. And um, so I I saw it about a year later, around the same time. I think it was around the holidays, around this time of year, Mm -hmm. in in 1977. Okay. And I was 16. And um, anyway... um, at sixteen, something important happened to me. Where uh, I've always struggled with my weight. I remember growing up as a kid, my mother would say, "Well, if you keep eating like that, one day you're going to be two hundred pounds." Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, uh, nineteen seventy-seven. At sixteen, I hit two hundred pounds. Oh, and I, it felt like like I had crossed, like it was uh, like the like the end of the, the end of the world. It really yeah. was devastating to me. Yeah. So I didn't know what I was going to do about it, but I knew that I had hit an important milestone. I kind of was uh, hit a bottom with that. So sometime around that time. Then anyway, so one night, there's no school, and um, there wasn't a whole lot of supervision. In that time in the 70s, there was a lot of freedom. You know, I, I went out and played as long as I wanted. You I were came home. In Brooklyn at I was time? living in Brooklyn, East New York, a nice section of East New York by Highland Park and uh, we lived on a block called Sunnyside Court it was very nice but anyway so one night when everybody went to sleep um, sometimes i'd sleep over at my friend's house across the street you know i was like their second son mm-hmm. or whatever so i you know so it wasn't uncommon that if jeff wasn't at home at 11 a, 11 p.m. he was probably sleeping across the street mm-hmm. with uh, at the at his friend's house so so my mother, I guess, was under that impression. So wait a minute, but what I actually did is yeah, I got... where were
0: you, Dad?
1: I actually got on the train. I got on the J train and then the A train, and I went to Times Square <laughs> at 16, and I was just going to take myself to the movies. There was no school the next day. And I just needed to have that experience. So, mm-hmm. so that I, I think I had never done that before.
0: Ah, so is, is that in and of itself was an adventure, yeah. just going to do
1: it. Yeah, I just I just needed to do something different or, or I was going to bust. Okay. So anyway, so I get to Times Square. And in those days, all along 42nd Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, there were all these movie theaters. And they were showing double features till the wee hour. Like, I think all, all night long, basically. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was going to see. Yeah. But when I got out of the train and I was walking down that 42nd Street, I saw a marquee and they were playing a double feature of Rocky and Mandingo. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that's what I'm going to see. I heard about Rocky. There was a lot of hoopla about mm-hmm. Rocky, but I hadn't seen it yet. And Mandingo, I didn't know what to expect. And, but I, anyway, I went yeah. in. And I stayed there and I caught the tail end of Rocky. So I walked in as Rocky was, you know, the, the the last few rounds and it totally blew me away. Yeah. So I, you know, I stayed for Mandingo, which was also a trip. <laughs> and I found out years later that the there was this, uh, in, in Mandingo, there was this boxer called Ken Norton, who was making his transition into making films. Mm. And he was actually cast, I just found out. Found this out this week or last, you know, getting ready to watch Creed with you, that Ken Norton was to play Apollo Creed.
0: Get out of here!
1: But he got uh, he got offered something else and he backed out, and then that gave Carl Weathers uh, mm-hmm. a chance, and well, he and he won the role. Yeah. So th- that <laughs> night I did see whatever. Yeah, it was so all connected. It was all way. connected somehow. Yeah. I didn't realize. So anyway, so I sat through Rocky, and I remember just being... Uh, so driven. hang on, so it
0: started over again, right? Because yeah, that, Back yeah. in those days, you could buy one ticket yeah. and just stay in the seat. You,
1: you could stay in there all day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you played hooky one day, you could be there and... Buy
0: one ticket. <laughs> and stay there
1: all day. You wow. Know? So, so I stayed, and I watched Rocky the whole time. And I remember being very moved and uh, inspired and feeling very emotional. And I guess I cried at moments because it's just so well written performed yeah. and acted. And then when I got out of the theater when I walked out it was so if I got into the city at 11 yeah. a 16 year old kid now it's like 1 2 in the morning
0: it, at least
1: and it was a weekday yeah and the streets were like empty and I just remembered so when I got to I remember I walked to broad walked to Broadway or 7th Avenue and I looked from 42nd I looked up 7th Avenue and there was no traffic coming. And I was like, I had this feeling like, oh my God, the city is mine tonight. And then I actually ran up uh, broad Seventh. Broadway, it was Broadway. I ran up Broadway from 42nd to, uh, what's that, uh, Duffy Square, where there's a statue of uh, George M. Cohan. Okay. So I ran up Broadway. So you did your own Rocky Rock. I run. did my own Rocky Rock. I was <laughs> like inspired. Like two in the morning in uh, Two in the morning. The city was mine. Times Square was mine. I was having a moment. And I ran right up Broadway. And then when I got to, and then I sat on the, sta- the steps of the statue, George M. Cohan looking downtown. And just having a moment. Like you've yeah. talked about well, where you yeah. just have a moment and you're just like, you know, you're, you Something know. Something special happening. You, you're aware that uh, you've, you've, you're at a crossroads, you're having this moment, something special, something is stirring. And, um, and I let that in. Mm-hmm. And for that moment, the whole city was mine. Something was awakened. But anyway. And
0: what was it about the character or the story or whatever that you think? Like, what did it unlock in you? What did it make you feel?
1: Well, obviously, you know, uh, the Rocky character was someone... Who was uh, had a lot of challenges, and he wasn't where he wanted to be, and um, and then he gets this moment to actually he gets a shot at the title, and if initially he says no because he doesn't yeah. feel prepared, but then he accepts it and then he begins. I he I think he has six weeks to train, but he begins to make himself ready, mm-hmm. and it's a real hero's journey. Yeah, you know. Um, and then he meets all these great characters, like he meets Mickey and he finds love for the first time. Yeah. You know, and uh, anyway, so it was inspiring that to just to see someone go through all these life challenges and to have a, a chance to renew himself mm-hmm. and to reinvent himself and, you know, and to transcend his former self. Yeah. And obviously, I wanted to transcend my former self. You know, I didn't want to be 200 pounds anymore. I wanted to uh, lose the weight. I wanted to win the girl. And, uh, and I wanted to pursue some dreams. Yeah. And at that point at 16, um, I was like, uh, something had to give.
0: Who was the girl?
1: The girl was your mother.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess... Uh... Yeah,
1: She was on my radar. We, we had a couple of dates when I was at 200 pounds. And, I mean, she had a couple of dates with me, so on some level, there was something about me she liked. But your mother was a beautiful, gorgeous, young woman. And,
0: uh, you know... And you felt like your weight was holding you back. Yeah, I felt like it was
1: a barrier. Well, I don't want to get into this too much. (laughs) But we went on this one date. I took her to see a terrible movie. (laughs) And we were sitting there in the dark. And eventually, you know, I'm, you know... I'm very slow to do anything. And she actually turned my head over to, and to kiss me.
0: She did it. She, she like, did All it. Right, but she stopped beating around she the bush. She's not beating around the bush. She could
1: tell like, I remember I was rubbing, I was like, I had my arm around her and I'm like doing something in her arm. Tickling she, her. Tickling her. her she <laughs> says, stop that. So she knew I was trying to get close to her. But eventually she just said, this guy doesn't have a clue. I know he wants to kiss me. So anyway, so anyway, I kissed her and for, for like the next hour of the film,
0: you have no idea what happened. We were just kissing oh, her yeah. <laughs> and
1: communicating and on some level we connected. But when the lights went up and I was still who I was, she kind of distanced herself. So I hmm. sensed like there was something about my body like, you know, I am sure I, that was mainly yeah, psychological. Yeah, mainly psychological. But know. anyway, it didn't click. But yeah. when I finally lost the weight,
0: now how did I you won lose the, girl. the weight though?
1: Because you had to
0: do a phrase that you've mentioned several times in your life. You had to pull a Rocky, didn't you? Yeah, I
1: pulled my first Rocky.
0: Your first Rocky.
1: So, And what that means is, you know, sometimes you let yourself go and then all of a sudden you know you have to make changes and then you finally do. And that's, that's what I mean when I say it's time to pull a Rocky. It's time to, you know, get my health back, yeah. get the weight down. Take charge. Take charge, make changes. So at this point, what I actually did was uh, I started jogging. Mm -hmm. So I, I lived a block away from the park. So I would jog maybe once or twice a day. And then uh, there was this long staircase that went from Highland Park up to Highland Boulevard. Mm. So I would jog the whole park several times, and then at the end, I would jog up the stairs. Gee, where'd you get that idea? <laughs> and I got the idea from Rocky when he's running up the stairs yeah. uh, in Philly. I forget where it was. That, it was uh, in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I guess it's City Hall or wherever yeah. that famous staircase is. But I actually had a staircase like that in Highland Park. So That's I kind of relived. It was very convenient. Mm-hmm.
0: And did you have like the soundtrack or anything? I mean, this is I, before I, you could like have a walk. No,
1: no, that, I think. did buy the album. Maybe, maybe that's what I asked for for Christmas. Is I, I did get the. Maybe I think I asked my mother for the Rocky album, and I got that for Christmas, and I played it to death. <laughs> and at home, when I was doing exercise, I might do two workouts a day. Yeah. So anyway, so when I started, so so if I saw it around this time, in 1977, from then to my birthday. April 10, 1978, when I turned 17, I lost 40 pounds.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I knew the actual numeric value. Yeah. You dropped 40 pounds. I dropped
1: 40 pounds in about four or five months pulling my first Rocky.
0: Humming, going the distance while you did it, I'm sure. Well, basically,
1: it was in, con- in my consciousness as I'm running. So they had the music in my head and in yeah. my body. And when, when I was at home, I was playing the album over and over while I was exercising. I remember I used to do these. I used to stand on my hands and put my feet up against the wall and do push-ups upside down, you know, like that. That's very I lucky. Mean, <laughs> I, I was doing all this stuff, and I cut all of my food portions in half. I remember my mother used to serve me, like at dinner, a huge plate of food. And she then needed, wonder
0: how you got to be 200 yeah, pounds. Yeah, my, my, Thanks, my, my <laughs> mom
1: was, was very interesting, so she would serve me food <laughs> Large portions, but she knew that I had a ravenous appetite. And then while I was sitting there digging into my dinner, she'd be looking at me and she'd say, you know, if you keep eating like that, <laughs> yeah. one yeah. day you're going to be 200 pounds. <laughs> but I love her, my mom. She yes, she was great. She did, she did great. But anyway, but eventually she would serve me that same plate and I just would go right down the middle and put the other half back in oh, the pot. All right. So I, all of a sudden I had discipline. Yeah. Because I had, I guess, the inspiration from the film, the real need to lose the weight and not be 200 pounds, because that was death. Yeah. And then I had this beautiful girl on my radar, Mm -hmm. on my heart's radar. Yeah. And I wanted to win her, you know. So anyway, so somehow or other, all these things came together. You had an Adrian. I had an Adrian. (laughs) and uh, So anyway, so I lost the weight, and that was pulling the first Rocky. I got down to 160, and eventually, about six months later, your mother and I started dating for real.
0: There you go. All right. Yes. All right. And then throughout this, you, know, you, you now enter your adulthood and you start seeing what Rocky becomes, right? Because it goes to Rocky 2, and, right? And what was your interest level as the, as the series started getting a little longer in
1: the tooth? Well, I was I was on board for Rocky two for sure. Yeah, to see him rematch with uh, Apollo Creed yeah. again, and to meet that whole cast of characters again, and Mickey and all that stuff. I was definitely down. Yeah. But as it started going on and on, I would see them and I would enjoy them, but eventually, you know, I started to I guess when it started getting to Rocky four five and. And it seemed like the next installment would be Rocky in space. <laughs> I thought, well, but the idea was, I always Rocky one is the one is really what I needed. That was the seed, and I still go back from time to time and see it. Yeah, to you know, to kind of like uh, to revisit that important time in my life.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting to me because like, over the years, like you know, you have these ter- these bits of terminology like the pulling a Rocky. You also reference like having a Mickey in your corner. Like it, the 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 themes of that film, the 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 structure of that film, and the, the 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 stuff that's that Stallone brought you know to the forefront, really seems to have like shaped certain things, like the way you you handle certain situations, and the way you look at life sometimes. Yeah. Um, and like you want to talk at all about the concept of like having a Mickey in your corner?
1: I think it's important. Um, well, just another. A series of films or documentaries that I liked was this, uh, "The Power of Myth." Um, Bill Moyers interviews he interviews Joseph Campbell, who is an expert on uh, mythology. Yeah. And anyway, and I, some if you look at Rocky, you have the hero, mm-hmm. you have the wise uh, person like the Yoda the sage, carrier, yeah. yeah, the guy who's going to help him, and then you know the, the the hero has challenges, and then he has. He has to overcome some obstacles. So, like, the hero's journey is very well encapsulated within Rocky. It's Mm -hmm. like uh, Sylvester Stallone really did his homework. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so now you look at, when I talk about the Mickey character, we all need someone older and wiser to kind of, like, guide us along. And I remember at a certain point, you know, I got jammed up, like, emotionally and stuff. I started seeing a therapist. And I realized, on some level, a therapist is kind of like your Mickey. Yeah. Because life is a challenge, and so imagine you need someone
0: who's you, kind of been you, you, down. Yeah, you,
1: know. you need someone that, that that like 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 what Mickey would do is, you know, he's in your corner. He's whispering in your ear. He says, "Okay, keep your left up. Do this, whatever." Then you go out. So you fight around. The bell rings. You sit back down in your corner, and then he'll say, "You know why You keep getting hit there, is because you keep dropping your left or whatever." Yeah. So a therapist too, as he gets to know you and see patterns. Every week when you go back and you sit in that chair... It's another round. He, it's another round of life, another week, another round. And then this Mickey in your corner will just help you to see where you might do things differently to achieve your goal.
0: Well, you know, I've, uh, I've always had a Mickey in my corner. And he's you. So thank you for that. Um, but... <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to quite detour us quite there, but I wanted to make sure you heard that because you've always been my Mickey. Um, and you pulling your Rockies has always been uh, such an inspiration because you pulled a few of those while I was around. Yeah, And I got to see you do them. And through you is where I learned all kinds of compassion and forgiveness and, and, and understood how people can change and how people can overcome what they were to become who they want to be. You've always been that guy for me. Like you are my Rocky. So hey, it's right. You're my Rocky. You're my Mickey. But um, just kind of want to point that out. That these things that mean a lot to you. I mean, they've indelibly changed my life and shaped who I am. So I want to thank you for that here, and I want I want to I want you to know that.
1: Okay. At your service. I love you. Yeah. Always. Um, and you know, you know, I I've made my mistakes along the way, and there's, you know but we just show up the best we can.
0: Now, there's a, there's a moment in Creed too. so if I want to bring us into the present, that made me think about, you know, to me there were parallels, but, you know, the moment where, like, after Adonis loses his, the, the first fight against Victor and he feels broken and he feels like he doesn't know what's going on with his life anymore, and, you know, being a champion just feels meaningless to him and he feels He needed
1: weak. to pull a Rocky, He see? needed
0: to pull a Rocky. But also one of the themes in the film is the way it's through his love of his family, of his child, that he decides, you know, he, he finds that strength and that courage to kind of pull out, like, you know, the, the, the pull out of that funk. You know what I mean? It's those moments he has with his kid when he's home alone with the kid and he feels broken and lost from that. Remember, it's like he's, all of a sudden he becomes reborn. He finds a new purpose. He finds a new driving force. And to me, it was interesting to have Creed II, you know, kind of visit that because I know that, you know, whenever it was when you were in your late 20s, you know, you hit your own bottom. We don't have to get into that, but I know that it was, it was thinking of your son that helped you remake yourself and pull a Rocky when you were 27, right? Yeah. So sitting there next to you for that was like, it was amazingly powerful for me. And in general, I feel like Creed II, if we can just you know, now lock in on that movie a little bit, I feel like it really locked into a lot of the great universal themes of what makes Rocky a great story. You know, the great underdog tale, the great trying to figure out what's wrong with me, why am I the way that I am, why don't things feel the way I think they should, what do I do to become the man I wanna be? Like Creed II to me really brings a lot of that back. now. You, as someone who saw the original back, you know, forty-two years ago, and you've seen all the different ways it's gone, did the movie impact you at all? Did it feel, you know, I don't, even, I'm, not, I'm not even sure how much you liked it. We haven't discussed that, so let me know. Like, did Creed 2 speak to you the way it spoke to me?
1: Well, the thing that's that's always fascinating about Rocky films is that the original was so well written, so well structured, that you can always borrow from it and and go to Rocky two, three, four, five, and six. yeah because Stallone took the time and the energy to put through this incredible tapestry. yeah and he always seems to be able to draw on that and make it new again. Yeah so for me that was the thing that was most enjoyable about seeing Creed 2 42 years later, which it was released 42 years to the, to the day. The day <laughs> Rocky, the original Rocky came out November 21, 1976, now 42 years later. So that'll, you know, but um, I guess what struck me most about the film is uh, to see Stallone again and to revisit that character. And even Stallone, even Rocky, has got challenges that mm-hmm. he's trying to overcome. He's trying still. to. Still. Still, Rocky is pulling Rockies, yeah. you know. So it's never over. As yeah. long as you're alive, there are going to be challenges. And um, he had to, at the end of the film, I won't reveal no, too we, much. We, we I won't reveal whatever. too much, but he has to heal his relationship with his own son. And he has to come to terms with his relationship with the death of Apollo Creed and now being uh, a widower, and yeah, but also being a, a mentor to Apollo Creed's son. Yeah, the responsibility. And he doesn't want to see... He didn't want to see him die in the ring like his father did uh, fighting... uh, What's that character? Ivan Drago. Drago. So it was like, anyway. So he had to make choices around that. So... I just mean so the, the the Rocky mythology is just so. Uh, it's
0: like it's universal in a way, right? Yeah, it's it's u- not even about the boxing. The boxing I've always said is like a metaphor. It's for it's, it, it's about the fights life. that we have to wage. And
1: it's about it's about pursuing the art of excellence. See, the thing is, uh, Rocky too. Like, there's a scene in the first Rocky where he comes in from the street. Like, you spend the first half hour, you're just kind of tagging along with Rocky, right? And then he winds up going to his apartment, and he lives alone. And then he's standing in front of the mirror, and he has a moment where he sees a photograph of himself when he was a child, like maybe before he even thought about boxing. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess on some level, he takes the picture and he looks at it, and he's having a moment. He's comparing himself to that innocent, you know, uh, person, and to who he who he is now. And he doesn't look very pleased when he's looking in the mirror. He's not. He's not. Yeah. He doesn't seem to be happy about where he's at in his life Mm -hmm. Rocky and even Apollo Creed like this striving for excellence I think uh, so Apollo Creed is is has reached the pinnacle of his excellence and he's the world champion the undisputed world uh, champion of the world and Rocky on some level got you know lost whatever he started being a a leg breaker for a second-rate loan shark Mm -hmm. and Mickey yells at him you know you had the talent to be a great fighter but, you, but you instead you became a leg-breaker for a second-rate uh, yeah. loan shark. And he goes, it's a living. Rocky says, it's a living. And Mickey says, it's a waste of life. So anyway, so at some level, he had stopped the pursuit of the art of excellence. But in the film, Rocky, he gets a chance to get back on track with that original... And Rocky vi- too. Yeah, in, in the first Rocky. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, gets, he gets a chance to go for the title. Mm-hmm. He gets a, fa- a chance to pursue the art of excellence. Even if he can't win, he just—if I could just be standing at in the fifteenth toe, to toe, ra- toe, the toe to toe with the greatest, mm-hmm. and uh, when that when that bell rings, uh, then I'll know for the first time in my life that I wasn't just some other bum from the neighborhood, yeah. whatever. But um, but the art of excellence is important. I think it touches on all the films. Yeah, yeah, Creed w- too
0: definitely has that. It, it, it's interesting too how like he has the, the motivation and the first one is about like how do I live up to my father's name or make a name for myself? And he hits this interesting wall on the second one and now he becomes Champ and it doesn't seem to feel the way he thought it would feel. And now all of a sudden he doesn't hear his dad's voice because now he's entering a whole new like chapter and now it's up to him to write it. And, he doesn't, and it's almost like he, he hits the top of the mountain now he's like, now what? And he has to dig deep and find what it is that's going to make him fight now, because you know, because up until this point, it's always been, dad, dad, or dad's legacy or whatever. Now he has to become his own man. You know what I mean? To me, that's one of the great little subplots in the thing where he has to find a new thing to fight for. You know, I I find that stuff uh, sort of endlessly fascinating.
1: Yeah, and like when I lost the weight. Yeah, you know, I thought everything was going to change. Yeah. So when I went from two hundred pounds to one hundred and sixty. There was a great feeling of achievement, but there was also this emptiness. Yeah, now As what? I, what that? Now what? It like, doesn't feel how I So It was. doesn't feel... I was still that uh, insecure. insecure, chubby kid, but when I looked in the mirror, I had transformed myself. It's, you know, like I... You know, at 17 years old, you know, I was the fittest I had ever been, and also I guess I had a growth spurt, and my shoulders grew... And it was like, you know, so I went from that chubby kid at 16. Now at 17, is like this Adonis-looking person looking at me in the mirror. I couldn't... Uh, so the you
0: know, exterior was one thing, but the interior, the interior didn't match
1: it. Yeah, and it didn't match, and it was confusing. And it's like, well, now what do I do? And on some level, that's what life's all about, to just try to figure out how to find meaning after you achieve some of these goals. They may sometimes feel hollow. Yeah.
0: I mean, life itself, and, the, and I feel one of the great metaphors of Rocky is that, like, life itself can be a fight, and you're constantly getting into new rounds, and you're, and you're finding new challenges, and, you know, like, like he said in Balboa, and it's a quote that I, I've revisited a bunch of times, to, to paraphrase, when he says, you know, life is not about how hard you hit, it's about how hard you can get hit, and keep finding the the way to keep moving forward, keep getting up, and keep on rising to the challenge.
1: Yeah. Is always trying, and even in, in Creed, he's Creed two. He's fighting the electric company to fix the light bulb yeah, in front of his he's building. He's always fighting, and uh, and he's also yeah, I, there was some other thing that he was struggling. He was still working on trying to heal his relationship yeah, with his son. His son so I mean, the the challenges always keep going on, and it's about getting up and going the distance and being standing. When that bell rings, you know, and that's the beauty of the Rocky franchise. That's it. And, and, <laughs> and Rocky's <laughs> mythology. And a day at a time, it's it's still full of meaning.
0: Yes, it is. Well, Pop, thank you so much for for joining me for episode eighty one of the Fanboy. I feel like we could have gone on a little more, maybe. When Creed 17 comes out, eventually we could do this again. I want,
1: to, I want to see Creed and Rocky in space.
0: Ah, you think it's time? You think it's time?
1: <laughs> I hope not.
0: Well, personally, I can't wait to see you pull your next Rocky. I'm
1: working on it right now as we speak.
0: Good. And if you need a Mickey in your corner who's somehow younger than you,
1: I'll be happy <laughs> to be there. Thanks, but I'll see my Mickey at 6.30 tonight. Yeah, you will. Thanks, Pop. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: So there you go. I hope uh, that wasn't that, that didn't get too schmaltzy in there for you. I uh, I toyed with the idea. By the way, there's Lucy. For those of you who want to see my dog, she's 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 wandered into the background. That's my little dog Lucy, who I've spoken about a couple times. She got hit by a car last year, uh, and I spoke about her on an episode. So some of you know who Lucy is. Lucy, come here, Lucy. Let's have the fanboy podcast, people. Who've heard about you, see you. So anyway, I'm going to let Lucy sit on my lap here for the last part of this. Just, um, you know, I I uh, I hope I didn't get too schmaltzy in there with my dad. Uh, that sort of stuff just happens. And honestly, you know, I toyed with editing. I toyed with like cutting around where it got a little uh, extra, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, sappy. But I'm like, you know what? you know, my, my whole thing is trying to be uh, authentic with you and just honest. And that was an honest conversation. What you heard was just, you know, uh, a father and son having a conversation and things came up and uh, we went somewhere <laughs> and you came with me. So I hope you enjoyed that. Everyone, if you... Uh, haven't yet, please go over on Apple Podcasts. Leave the Fanboy Podcast a five star review. I greatly appreciate it. Let's keep this thing climbing the charts. Let people know the good word about this show and about RevengeOfTheFans.com. And I hope you're all taking good care of yourselves out there. Go see some great movies. Go spend some time with people that you care about. And as always, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adiós.